from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Ann Perry on April 22, 2014. Ann and her husband created the production company Perry Productions and produced the documentary film Luminous Journey, Abdu'l-Bahá in America, 1912. Abdu'l-Bahá is the son of the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah. Abdu'l-Bahá came to America in 1912 to promote his father's teachings. You can find the trailer for the film at luminousjourney.org. Anne tells her story on how she found the Baha'i faith and how arts is an important aspect of her expression of her faith. I started the interview by asking Anne where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. Well, I'm actually from Little Rock, Arkansas, and I grew up in the 50s and 60s, which was a very dramatic time. My parents were both involved in the Civil Rights Movement, and my father marched in Selma with Martin Luther King Jr., and my mother was on the school board trying to integrate the schools at a time when it was very unpopular to do so. So I was a little girl, and we were getting phone calls, you know, inward lover, and they'd click and hang up, and I'd say, what does that mean, you know? And my mother ran for re-election but was not re-elected, because of her stance on integration. And during that time, the Little Rock schools closed down for a year, all the high schools, because of problems with integration. In other words, nine students came to Central High School. Parents would line up and throw rocks at these kids. And it was a very difficult scene, you know. And we were trying to to help bring about social change. So... When we would go to church with people of color, people would get up and walk out. When my mother went to black churches to speak in the pulpit and offer a message of hope for social change, we would be embraced. Mm. And it was so it was a wonderful time in some ways in that we were living through historical time. And how old were you when all of this was going on? I was about six years old in 1958 when the schools shut down and we continued to participate in demonstrations and marches for a long time after that like one time I remember when I was about 10 or 12 we took a mixed group of people to a segregated restaurant at the state capitol building and the police showed up with tear gas and cattle prods and I was still quite young and that was pretty dramatic Right. So did you feel that the pressure was too much for such a confrontational situation being 10 years old? I felt frustrated that change was not happening more quickly. It was a little different for me because none of my friends' parents were as involved as mine were in these sorts of activities. So I remember looking at when I was really young, a little black girl my age and thinking she could be my friend. And that was sort of 
a radical thought. You know, it was it kind of dawned on me that the possibility of race unity was actually there. And we would be in crowds singing, We Shall Overcome. And, you know, tears would flow down our faces. And there was just such a hope for change. My mom's still real involved in the peace movement and in, you know, working hard to change the world. And what was spiritual life like growing up? Well, I was in a liberal Presbyterian church. And I was always really fascinated by religion. And my parents were kind of real socially active. And I can remember being at a party that they had where there was a a record album with the Nietzsche quote, God is dead on it. And I was so distressed by seeing those words in print that I snuck out one morning early and went over to the church to see if God had died. And I remember thinking that God lived in the top part of the sanctuary, you know, up toward the ceiling. At that time, there was a construction going on in the church and a scaffold that went almost up that high. The door was unlocked. In those days, people didn't lock the doors of the church. And I climbed up that scaffolding to have a talk with the ceiling, essentially, with God. And the workmen came in that morning to find this little girl up on the scaffolding having this conversation and called my parents. But my real question was, is God alive? Is, is he active and available? And that kind of continued throughout my life to be a, an interesting question. And you carried that question with you through childhood and teenage years? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And I was in college and really questing. I think I started to study yoga and practice vegetarianism, and I was very influenced by Eastern religion and philosophy. And then I, I took a comparative religion course, and I was stunned to find out that, or to discover that all of the religions had a similar foundation in that all of the prophets of God had suffered certain things, had had miraculous stories around them. And my eyes opened to this concept that Baha'is embrace progressive revelation, that all of the prophets of God are connected, and that religion is essentially one thing that's just revealed periodically at different times and different places with different names but it's all part of the same continuum. And this was an exciting discovery. So you had sort of developed this concept on your own through exposure to this comparative religions class? Mm-hmm. That summer I went to a swimming party, and there was a young man there who was not a Baha'i, but he had met a Baha'i. And when I was, tell- I was in the pool and I was telling people about my realizations about the oneness of religion— And he said, well, have you ever heard of Baha'u'llah and the Baha'i faith? And the funny thing was I'd studied religion for about six weeks intently, and I had not heard of it yet. And I thought, oh, he must not know what he's talking about, or else it's some little small thing. But he pursued the conversation. And then at the end of the evening, he went to his car, and he had a book called The Baha'i World Faith. And he loaned it to me. He said, I want you to look at this book. I took it with me about a week later. I read one paragraph, and I started pacing up and down and thinking, what is this? It's either something very important that will bring everything together, or it's something I shouldn't delve into because it's too strange or too something. I don't know, you know, beware of 
cults or something. So, but it was very powerful to me, that passage I read. And so I called that young man. He came over to my house. I asked him more questions. And he didn't know many of the answers. And he said, well, maybe we can find some Baha'is in St. Louis or Dallas or somewhere. And I thought, well, maybe there's some in Little Rock. So we looked up in the phone book. Indeed, there was a listing. We called the number. And I remember being very nervous. I I held the hand of that young man. And a very friendly Baha'i answered the phone. We explained we were searching for truth. And we had some questions. And they said, well, that very evening there was a gathering, what they called a fireside, and could we come over? And so we decided to go that night. And we went with the book that he had loaned me. And the Baha'is were all very friendly and happy. And it was young and old and black and white. And this impressed me because, you know, it was a gathering that that reflected race unity and a complete comfort level with the youth and the adults and the older adults and the children. And so we sat down, and I asked some very serious questions that night. And for the first time in my life, I felt like they were really answered, that they were really dealt with. And this was stunning to me. I left there thinking, it's amazing. I feel like I connected with these people in a way I had never connected with anyone And that the questions I had asked my minister or the yoga teachers, you know, or even my my religion teacher at the school were finally answered. And it was through the Baha'i faith. So what was it in this book, Baha'i World Faith, that agitated you so much? I don't remember, but I think it was the language Mm. of revelation. You know, Baha'u'llah and his son, Abdu'l-Baha, wrote so beautifully scriptures for today and it was possibly just a passage about unity or about gender equality I'm not sure it was just something that drew me in and I felt like it it must be the answer to something it must fulfill the prophecies or something it just seemed very different from the man-made philosophical things I had been reading you know, like the um, the reform movements within Christianity, say, or or even teachings of yoga, or this and that. Nothing could compare to the language and the the beauty and the power of it. What were the questions that you were asking that you felt were getting answered for the first time at this Baha'i fireside? Well, one essential question is why are there so many religions and why do people become disunified because of religion? And then aside from that, I had many questions about the mystic life and what happens after death, for instance. And the Baha'i writings, of course, are very satisfying regarding that question. You know, earlier scriptures like Christianity or even scriptures of other holy books seem to suggest analogies that worked for an earlier time period, but I think our minds now have developed to be able to handle more abstract concepts. And so the Baha'i writings were much more clear and appropriate for this age, I felt. Especially in regards to what the afterlife would be? 
Right, the life of the soul and what happens mm-hmm. and that it's not a static reality, that the Baha'i writings assert that the soul is like a, a bird that has flown out of the cage, that's become free of its its corporeal life, you know, the body, the personality, even the gender, those things fall away and what is left is this essential self that is sublime and ever-evolving. I mean, I think our understanding of of hell might be a kind of state of embarrassment that you haven't developed certain aspects or uh, attributes in this world. Upon death, you realize that, you know, kind of what you've missed, perhaps, as I understand it. And then there's constant evolution, and it can be influenced by people here praying for us after we pass, and perhaps by our own efforts. I'm not sure about that, but the writings certainly are comforting and give us the assurance that the soul is an eternal entity. Yeah, I think Baha'u'llah also said something about the souls of the next world are 11 to what spiritually happens in this world. Yes. So I've learned to pray to certain people for assistance and feel the connection of loved ones that have gone on feel that influence, and certainly in my own life, it's been of great assistance, I think. And I guess in regards to your question about why there's so many other religions, I guess you explained that a little bit earlier about this Baha'i concept of progressive revelation. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you want to elaborate any more on that concept. Religion should not be the cause of disunity, in the Baha'i writings. And in fact, Abdu'l-Baha, the son of Baha'u'llah, said that if religion causes disunity, it's better not to have religion. In other words, the very root word religio means to bind together, to unite. And so people of faith, it is hoped, have much in common, even if the particulars of our individual faiths differ. And this is where it's a crucial time in human history, I think, to to understand this and and be respectful of others' beliefs and to listen and to engage in discourse without feeling threatened by what someone else believes. So what happened after the fireside? Well, for about three months, I investigated the faith. I had read this tablet of the truth seeker. I, I was at a fireside, a gathering at a blind man's home. I was quoting from that tablet. And I said, how can one rid oneself of the obscuring dust of acquired knowledge? The people that were there were kind of surprised that this seeker was quoting from this tablet. And someone said, well, do you want to be a Baha'i? And I said, oh, I can't be a Baha'i. Because I had read that Baha'is had all these high attributes and were really striving to manifest so much love in the world. And I just was unsure that I could do that. Someone said, yes, you can. And I said, well, all right, pass me that card. It was a declaration card that's a simple procedure of, of how someone becomes a Baha'i. And everyone was excited. But I thought, well, what's the big deal? Until later that night, I realized I had really taken a, a, a large step of faith that this faith would be one I would embrace for the rest of my life and that I would try to live up to the teachings. And there was actually 
a consoling passage that someone shared with me. When Abdu'l-Bahá was asked, how does one become a Baha'i? His answer was, little by little, day by day. And so I thought, okay, I will try this. I may not be perfect at it, but I will take this step. And it felt as if this seed started to grow within me and would, you know, later turn into a, a tree when flowering branches and so forth. So then I went to college in California and I met the Baha'i community there and got kind of acclimated into a Baha'i pattern of life, you know, the Baha'i calendar system and so forth. And since then, that's been about 40 years, I've traveled a lot as a Baha'i. I've met many people from different countries. And certainly I've especially developed um, the arts within a Baha'i context. After you became a Baha'i, did you share this with your parents and what were their reactions to you becoming a Baha'i? I did, but I was kind of nervous about it. I think at that time it was kind of strange for them to have a daughter that was so interested in mysticism versus the drug culture or something like that. You know, For them, their, their focus was more on kind of political outreach and mine was more inner and mystical and so it was a little strange but I went to visit the Baha'i Temple in Wilmette and I came back from that trip and my grandparents were there and everyone said well where have you been and I started to explain I was visiting the Baha'i Temple in Chicago, Wilmette, Illinois and my grandparents said, does that have anything to do with these beautiful gardens we visited in Haifa? And they had been to the Baha'i World Center and had seen the gardens before I had even known about the faith. So pretty much your parents got used to the idea, I suppose. Little by little. Yeah. I think they've accepted the fact it wasn't a passing phase. Certainly the emphasis on peace is very appealing to my mom, who's still very much a, an activist in the peace movement. Is she still in Little Rock? Mm-hmm. So you went off to California and went to finish college there? Mm-hmm. So what did you get your degree in? I created it in aesthetics, and it was really a study in beauty, especially poetry and dance and various arts, in context of spirituality. So I was I was searching even back then to put together an integrated interdisciplinary program of study. And I went on to get one master's in English and humanities, a second master's in interdisciplinary arts, and then a PhD in humanities with a focus in aesthetic studies. That was very exciting. And my dissertation was on art and religion, the confluence, also the conflict of those two things. How's that? Well, there are, two very different and very important pathways in the world. And art has often been used as the handmaid of religion, but also art can sometimes be seen as transgressive by uh, religion because the artist is always trying to take risk and say, say new things and sometimes point to injustices and things in a way that may make at least the conservative element of religion nervous because in art it's considered um you know quite acceptable often to 
to take these great risks. And so sometimes there's an interesting tension between these two things. But certainly, for many centuries, there's been a wonderful confluence of religion and art. For example, we think of the, the Christian paintings or the Buddhist sculptures um, or any number of things such as music, architecture, and the like, where art has been in service to spiritual ideas. And so since becoming a Baha'i, I've been very interested in making my theater, dance, writing, and now film work related to Baha'i ideas and principles. So what was the first work that you did after you finished your education? Well, I wrote a lot of poetry, and I did some dramatic pieces, and just continued to develop these kind of talents. And the interesting thing was that the Baha'i writings themselves had so much to say about the arts, and that art is a gift of the Holy Spirit, and that uh, there will be a new art, a new architecture fused of the beauty of the past, but new and that the stage will be the pulpit of the future. And I love that idea. In the Baha'i Faith, we don't have clergy, and there is the understanding that the arts will lead us to greater unity and peace, and certainly um, just teaching the Baha'i Faith and its concepts. When you think about it, fables, stories, things that children learn, say, in Sunday school or whatever. These things are very important to gain spiritual awareness. And so the Baha'i Faith is no different in that it will utilize the arts in many ways. It is different in that the scriptures themselves are so full of references to the arts and their importance. So can you share some of the work that you've done in the past? Well, the most exciting thing is that my husband and I have made a film called Luminous Journey, Abdu'l-Bahá in America, 1912. We finished it last summer after three intense years of working on it, but I really feel like it's been evolving for about 40 years because when I became a Baha'i, I was fascinated by the story of Abdu'l-Bahá coming to America. Now, he again was the son of Baha'u'lláh. He was released from prison after suffering over 40 years in prison, and he came to the West, you know, not having been schooled in traditional school, but rather sitting at his father's feet, so to speak. And he came full of understanding of how to speak to people, rich and poor, high and low, black, white, whatever. Uh, He came in 1912 at a time before the women even had the vote, There was still a great deal of racial prejudice. And he addressed these issues in beautiful ways. And the stories are really interesting. So when I met my husband about 20 years ago, uh, he was producing videos for the World Congress. It was a Baha'i gathering in New York. And we shared an interest in art and film. And so our very marriage was based on our mutual interest in these things. And it was only natural when 2012 was approaching that we talked about doing something to commemorate that anniversary. And what we ended up doing was way beyond that because it is a story that transcends time and space. It's a story that will never grow old. And Abdu'l-Bahá will always be of importance 
to the world. And we found that in making this film, many people who weren't Baha'is were attracted to learning about the person of Abdu'l-Baha or helping us in some ways. And so we had, I think, seven interns from my school. I teach at the Art Institute of Dallas. And we had multiple people helping us, production assistants, video people, graphic designers, web designers, actors, and so forth, helping us who didn't know much about the Baha'i faith or certainly about Abdu'l-Baha specifically, but who gained something from the production that we were involved with. And film is a huge endeavor. I mean, we had, for us, what became a very large budget, far beyond what we were expecting it to cost, but we had many donations coming in, and we were able to produce something that far exceeded our own dreams. And in fact, uh, music was composed for it. We created a CD of the soundtrack, and we made both Blu-ray and standard def uh, videos. So it's been a very exciting journey without much sleep for the last few years. So who composed the music? Lisa Hayes-Smith from Australia, and she happened to be working at the Baha'i Distribution Service a couple of years ago when I called, and I talked to this lovely lady from Australia, and we were just chatting, and she asked me about my current projects, and I told her about the film, and she said she had always wanted to compose music for feature films. She had done some short films, and so we had her send some of her music to us, and then we did a Kickstarter And we took half of our Kickstarter money to orchestrate her music in a studio in Los Angeles with live studio musicians. And this, again, exceeded our concept of what we could ever do or produce in our lifetimes. And I really feel like Abdu'l-Baha wanted his story told, and we were given the assistance we needed to do that. So the music is beautiful, and it really fits the film. So I always wondered how a score is developed in conjunction with the development of the film and how you coordinate the two and and so on. Can you explain that process just a little bit for me? Yes. Um, we thought about themes for the various segments of the film. For example, there was an American theme. There was a Western movement theme. There was kind of a sorrowful theme when Abdu'l-Baha would be leaving places. There was an upbeat, joyful theme in certain areas. So we would give Lisa timings for how long we thought the scene would be and moods, and she created music, and then we recorded it all. There were 10 songs total we recorded over in three hours, actually. And then my husband took the stems of the music and edited them so that it would be the right length. And sometimes he would combine music in a certain scene where the mood might change or, you know, or he would add additional sound effects or, um, you know, he would put some of the stems together depending on the instruments and so forth. So it's quite a complex process, but it really has a huge impact on the film's emotional tenor. Is there a basic narrator taking us through the story of Abdu'l-Baha in America? Yes, we have one main narrator, and the person who read that is the granddaughter of Dorothy Baker, who was a famous Baha'i who knew Abdu'l-Baha. 
we have that narrator, we have a flashback narrator, and we have the words spoken by Abdu'l-Bahá, read by a reader with a British accent. Then we have numerous voices that reflect people of the time, like an eyewitness who might have seen Abdu'l-Bahá in a church, for instance, like the Unitarian minister that was influenced by him and eventually embraced the faith. Do you have any stories that you can share with us that really moved you as part of Abdu'l-Bahá's sojourn in the United States? Well, there were so many, but I'd like to tell a story that we couldn't include in our film. Actually, first I should say that the script I wrote originally was for about an eight-hour film, and I had to keep cutting and cutting, and this was very painful. (laughs) (laughs) And even now, our film is two and a half hours, and we need to do a shorter version for a broadcast or whatever, but... One of the stories I really love is about a little boy outside of Toronto who was sitting on a fence post when Abdu'l-Bahá's train passed, and he was from the Mohawk Indian tradition or Native American tribe. And so when the train passed and this turbaned, bearded man stood up and waved to the child, the boy was so surprised he fell off the fence. He was about five or six years old. Well, 40 years later, he was in the home of a Baha'i, and he saw a portrait of Abdu'l-Bahá. And he said, that's the man I saw on the train so many years ago that I never forgot. And he became the first person of his tribe to embrace the Baha'i faith. Now, the story I really like, and maybe it's in your film, is the one about when Abdu'l-Bahá goes to the Bowery in New York, and there are some kids there. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you could share that story. Well, first of all, when we the day we went to the Bowery, we had kind of an amazing experience. We walked in, and it was like we were taken back historically to those days. And we could picture, you know, Juliet Thompson and Abdu'l-Bahá arriving there with this interviewer, Kate Carew, who was a New York journalist who often poked fun at people. But Abdu'l-Bahá escorted her to the Bowery, and she had a change of heart there. So there's many stories kind of associated with that. But you'll have to help me with the stories of the children. Didn't they make fun of him or throw rocks at him or something? Or They were making fun of him because he was dressed you so know, strange. in the Oriental garb, and so they were making fun of him. And I think it was one of the ladies from New York who was accompanying him, said to the boys, you know, this is a very special man, and you should really treat him with respect. And they said, well, can we visit him? Or can we talk to him? And I think, correct me, Anne, if I've got this wrong, or jump in if I'm off track, the lady that was accompanying Abdu'l-Bahá said, well, you can come to my house at this address, and you can visit him then. Mm-hmm. And then they came the next day, and and the lady did not anticipate them coming. She figured that they'd just forget about it once the episode ended. There were two white boys and a black boy. Mm -hmm. So they came, and they knocked on the door, and they introduced themselves and said they came to see the Persian man. And Abdu'l-Bahá invited them up. And now, Abdu'l-Bahá was not fluent in English. I mean, his language was Persian. So he communicated spiritually 
to folks in a lot of ways when they were alone or in private meetings. And so he had these three ruffian boys meeting this uh, spiritual man, and he noticed the uh, the black child, and he just was just giving the black child so much attention because in his eyes he was uh, special. Mm-hmm. And to sort of demonstrate his feeling about it, he had some a box of chocolates, and he grabbed a, a piece of chocolate and held it to the boy's face to sort of tell the other two boys that, see, this boy, he's as sweet as the chocolate. Right. And that those boys probably, we assume, looked at their friend a little bit differently than in the past. Right. And it was, the, it was Carrie Kenny's home. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is a beautiful story and, yeah. and very touching. You know, an example of how he did show by example of kindness and helped open people's eyes to a new reality, to beholding the oneness of humanity. So, yeah, I love that story, too. I had forgotten it was kind of associated with the Bowery, but it was kind of a a poor area, and many poor men would come to the Bowery for, it's like a soup kitchen, and they weren't really expecting to be moved by this person, but they had all voted to have him come when Juliet told them that he he had been a prisoner. And, and that kind of interested them, you know, who is this guy? And and he came and, and basically, you know, talked about Christ and how Christ was poor and and they should not feel shame about their poverty but be hopeful, and he he made them feel good, and then he gave them each a quarter that was the price of a bed. The journalist who was so skeptical about this person from the East sort of became influenced by his sincerity and had a change of heart. So there's many things associated with every day of Abdu'l-Bahá's visit in America but when we did go to the Bowery, it was such a, a special and poignant feeling that we had inside that room. And the interesting thing is, in the future, a lot of these buildings will no longer exist or won't be available to film inside. And so we got to visit a lot of the places that he had actually been to and captured that and hope we told the story well so that people will get a sense of place as they hear these stories. That's so fortunate that you were able to capture the inside of the, that place even today after so many years. Mm-hmm. That it's still standing. It's a blessing. Yes, it really is. And there were many, many places like that we visited. Another story that really moved me, and I think it was a story that Howard Colby Ives, who you mentioned the Unitarian minister that, that was very influenced by Abdu'l-Bahá, such that he actually relinquished his position in the Universalist Church to accept the religion of Baha'u'llah, the Baha'i Faith. I haven't heard the story in a long, long time, but it just it's always in my mind, so I might not have it exactly right, that Abdu'l-Bahá was walking down the street, and he was passing a man, and it was I think it was cold, and he... He didn't even have pants to wear, I think, or something to that effect. Or his pants were very tattered and torn. And Abdu'l-Bahá went under a fire escape and was fiddling under his robes because he 
the oriental garb was really robes, and took off his pants and gave them to the man that had tattered and torn pants. And it just—it mm-hmm. was just another story that, you know, I haven't read these stories in years and years and years, but certain ones stick in my head like, this is a very special man. Yeah, there are several occasions when Abdu'l-Bahá would give away something he owned. And, in fact, Baha'u'lláh predicted this. He said, someday Abdu'l-Bahá will give away himself. <laughs> and this is the sense that he sacrificed his life for us. And and it, it's a beautiful thing to realize. And that this man was not considered a prophet of God, but he was called the mystery of God because he was certainly superhuman in the sense that he had innate educational faculties and also he seemed to be so intuitive like when he was first offered uh, a trip to America the the early believers sent him or or urged him to come on the Titanic and send him money which he returned and said no I'll come on a different ship and actually his ship arrived in New York the day the Titanic left England And then, of course, we know what happened four days later and how the newspapers made so much of it. And Abdu'l-Bahá simply said, you know, his heart had not prompted him to take that that boat trip. But he also felt that he should travel more modestly. He was not into uh, first-class tickets or, you know, into luxury or wealth, preferring really to, to travel very simply. So, Anne, if someone wants to view your video, how would one get a hold of it? Well, we have a website, www.luminousjourney.org, and you can order the film from that website and also through the Baha'i Distribution Service and also through Nine Star Media, which is a great place, especially for Baha'i music. It's kind of like the iTunes of Baha'i music. We are in process of creating a Persian version of our film, and that's an interesting new challenge. And also in China, they're, they're making one with Chinese subtitles. So these stories can continue to be told around the world and in different languages. And this has just been such an exciting journey for me, this combination of art and religion. And I really think that we have much to look forward to in this ever-evolving civilization unfolding. And all of us have a part to play in this kind of new paradigm of an emerging uh, world consciousness. Well, Anne, thank you so much for sharing your work with us. Thank you, Warren. I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Anne Perry, co-producer of the documentary film Luminous Journey. Abdu'l-Bahá and America 1912. You can find the trailer for the film at luminousjourney.org. I have the link posted on the website. After closing this portion of the program, I play the soundtrack from the trailer. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
America was alive with the promise of great change in 1912, when Abdu'l-Bahá came to its shores from the Holy Land. He came not as an immigrant or tourist, but as an invited guest, bearing a message of universal peace and the unity of the East and the West. He traveled across the nation from coast to coast, affirming a visionary view of America's future, addressing audiences in places such as New York, Washington, D.C., Boston, Montreal, Chicago, Minneapolis, Denver, San Francisco, and Elliott, Maine. He spoke on race unity, gender equality, and social justice, captivating the interests of philosophers, the clergy, journalists, artists, statesmen, and all strata of American society. His appeal for unity was to all. Born in Persia, exiled in his youth, then imprisoned for 40 years, he lived an exemplary life of service. His name was Abdu'l-Bahá. His title was Servant of Glory. He was the first Baha'i. Whom did he encounter? What was it like to meet him face to face? What did this man, now at an advanced age, offer to the United States and Canada? And what implications do his journey and the talks he gave have for us today? Take a journey to 1912 in celebration of the centenary of his visit and discover a chapter of American history destined to change the consciousness of a nation.
Talking about an end to 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.